Turn with me your Bibles to the end of James, chapter 5. We'll uh, be in verses 13 through 20 this morning. Kids, in the Bibles that we've given you, or if you grabbed a Bible on the back table, can be found on page 1013. 1013. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. This is God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. So this morning, in verses 13 through 20, James answers the protest that may have arisen in verses 7 through 12 last week. Last week's sermon may have been encouraging to you when you heard it um, uh, in church. Be patient, be steadfast, don't grumble. I mean, all that sounds great, right? And you leave and you go, okay. I've got it. But then Monday morning comes along, Monday afternoon, rolls into Tuesday, and we think, just be patient. How is that supposed to work? How's that supposed to happen, especially the way the passage closed last week? Don't make any oaths. Don't make any promises. But, you know, but James told us to be patient, but it's almost like we're clueless in how to bring this about. Well, today we learn how to bring that about. In verses 7 through 12, there are seven references to patience or steadfastness. And in verses 13 through 20, there are seven references to prayer. Prayer is the gift that God has given his people to build in them patience and steadfastness. And so in these closing verses of James, we see four characteristics of prayer that will form as the outline for our time together this morning. The first thing we see in verse 13 is that prayer is unceasing. Prayer is unceasing. Prayer is not simply relegated to times of need. We often think that if I'm sitting down to pray in the morning, you know, you flop open your Bible and you go, okay, it's time to pray. What, what do I need to pray for? What do I need? Let me survey things and what do I need? Or I've encountered a problem. I need help. Let's talk about this. It's almost like I'm phoning the front desk at the hotel, right? 
Certainly prayer is useful in times of need, but prayer is a gift that enables us to acknowledge that all of life, all of life is lived in submission to the Lord. Paul in Ephesians 6, 18 says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. On all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And James alludes to this all-encompassing nature of prayer here as well in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let's take these one at a time. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Pray for what? What should we pray for when we're suffering? Pray for the suffering to go away? Sure, yeah, that's fine. After all, Jesus prayed, if it be your will, let this cup, cup of what? Cup of suffering pass from me. But then he says, yet not my will, but thy will be done. We read last week about um, how stead, the steadfastness of Job and the suffering of the prophets. And so we learned that, that um, asking for suffering just to be taken away from us really isn't the focus of this letter, is it? We know that we aren't wired for suffering. I mean, we aren't wired for steadfastness in suffering. But we know that we're commanded to suffering. So how does that come about? How does steadfastness in suffering come about? Through prayer. We know that God promises blessings of great significance if we can remain steadfast in suffering, right? In James 1, 2 through 4, can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. In 1 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we see great benefit to suffering in the book of James and the blessings that come with steadfastness. So we ought to pray for the Lord to make us strong in suffering. I'm reminded uh, of a book um, Heather um, made me aware of several years ago, uh, the heavenly man, Brother Yoon in, in China, who was a Christian and suffered greatly at the hands um, of the Chinese um, Communist Party. He was beaten countless times and in and, and telling Christians how to pray for him, he said, we shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and his power. Pray for steadfastness. Pray for faith. Pray acknowledging that God is in control of the circumstances of my life. And I know from chapter one that this will produce wonderful fruit and blessing for me and making me more like Jesus. And so in suffering, I ask for confidence and for grace to endure. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This represents the other spectrum, the other end of the spectrum of life. What role does prayer play when, line, when the lines fall in pleasant places for you? Sing praise. We've acknowledged that God has ordained 
all of our days before one of them came to be. And so if you find yourself in a pleasant spot, if you find yourself in a place of abundance, if you find yourself in good health, if you find yourself in an, in an, uh, in an encouraging relationship with family and friends, praise God for that. Acknowledge what our sin deserves from the Lord is judgment. And instead, he has shown himself patient with us. And not only patient, but generous and kind and benevolent. Praise God for that. I was so encouraged and helped by Pastor Kyle's prayer because it just lit in me just this appreciation and this acknowledgement and understanding and realization of God's kindness to us. And it is such a sweet kindness that he has given us. And so the privilege to pray that back to him and to acknowledge his kindness helps us to submit in all aspects of life, not just the bad times, but also the good times, and realize that the Lord's hand is on it. We think back to Job from last week. Shall I not receive good and not bad from the Lord? We tend to only let God know when things are bad or not to our liking. But how often do we show gratitude for the pleasant things of life? What do you have that you did not receive? Well, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Which leads to another um, reason to praise him in good times through prayer, because we can begin to think that it's our hand that has created the good or it's fate, or it's just luck, or wow, this, the, the, the wheel stopped uh, you know, at a pleasant place for me. That, this, that it's our wisdom that got our bonus, or it's our skill that got us our recognition from the supervisor, and we forget the Lord. Unceasing prayer, that is prayer in all circumstances, teaches us that all we have we owe to the Lord. We're never alone. God has purposes in all of it, and we are to live in submission to him. This is, but this is a burden for us, especially in the good times. I've heard of many people having prayer meetings for specific needs. You know, somebody's sick, let's call a prayer meeting, and let's pray over them, and let's you know, ask the Lord to intervene. But I haven't heard of very many prayer meetings at the end of the at the end of the trial, praising God for for uh, for healing or sustaining them through the trial, and maybe it's not all cut and dried and buttoned up the way we would like for a trial to be. But nevertheless, we have seen the Lord carry them and sustain them through it, and we ought to pray in those circumstances just as fervently as we pray in the beginning, asking for the Lord's support. And, and undertaking for us, and at the end, thanking him for proving himself faithful in all of our circumstances in life. I'm reminded of Jesus healing the 10 lepers in Luke 17. They came to Jesus and said, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? 
Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Prayer is unceasing. Prayer is, is for all of life. And we need prayer both in suffering and in cheer to show us that all of life was lived in submission to Christ. This leads to another observation, our second observation about prayer in verses 14 through the first half of verse 16. Prayer is humble and bold. Prayer is humble and bold. It may seem odd to include those two adjectives together, humble and bold. But it's striking to me how prevalent humility and boldness are in these three verses. James is following the same formula he followed above where he said, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Now he says, is anyone among you sick? The sickness here is different than the suffering above. Can sickness be suffering? Absolutely. Suffering, sickness is always suffering. But in suffering, James exhorts us to pray for ourselves, but something is different about this as opposed to just everyday suffering. There's a lot to talk about here. So what's the difference between, um, uh, what's the difference in the sickness here? It seems to me that we're talking about a serious illness that can negatively influence a person's faith. It can be a major cancer diagnosis or a serious heart condition or a major surgery or a bad COVID case that may lead to, uh, has the potential to be deadly. Or it could be a chronic illness that seems to just, I mean, that doesn't, is not deadly, but it just is discouraging and, and it just doesn't seem to go away. And it's just this constant level of, of discomfort or, or, or discouragement with no, no seeming end in sight. So for instance, if you get a diagnosis of an aggressive form of cancer, that can be unbelievably discouraging. And you know that you're signing up for a lot of invasive surgeries or treatments. And then at the end of that, there's no guarantee that this is going to turn out. And so on top of all of that, you have the uncertainty of whether you're going to make it or not. There's a lot of understandable fear there, right? I may be worried about my witness. I want to be strong. I profess that the Lord is enough and sufficient, but I've never been sifted like this before. And I'm I'm fearful that I may be, I may fall prey to the, uh, the uh, urging of Job's wife, just curse God and die. It's not turning out for me the way I hoped. I may be concerned that my illness is a judgment from God. Is that far-fetched? Not really. We've seen it. We see it both ways in scripture. I remember um, in, um, you know, I remember the disciples asking Jesus, uh, who sinned, this man, the man born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he says, neither. But you look at John 5, when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, he tells him in verse 14, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so we see both cases in scripture. It's hard to discern. Okay, so is this judgment or is this just, you know, just God's providence for me. It's all God's providence for me, but is there something I need to be um, 
confessing for. So I need help processing that. I want to honor God both in living and in dying, and I'm concerned that I don't have what it takes to do that. My faith is weak, weaker than ever before, and I feel like I'm just being poured out, and I want my circumstances of life. Uh, I, I want to pray that my circumstances of life are um, that the Lord would endure for me, but it's just too heavy. I mean, it's just so discouraging, and the cloud is so thick, I just can't determine what's up from down anymore. And I don't know how to pray, and I'm so discouraged, I just don't even expect the answers. I'm just, I'm just... I'm just burdened. The deck just seems stacked against me. What do I do? Well, this, consider, this can, uh, call, um, requires a considerable amount of humility for us in this situation to actually just cry out and say, I desperately need help. I need help. To confess that you're weak and doubting and fearful and frankly, not even confident in prayer or its efficacy. You know, when we're asked how we're doing spiritually, most of the time, what's our answer? Meh, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, things are okay. We don't want to admit that we're struggling. We don't want to admit that we're in desperate need of help. We may not even sense it ourselves. This requires a great deal of self-awareness and humility on our part. As I've been praying for our loved ones who have been facing death over the last couple of months, the big thing that has struck me is praying for courage for them. They desperately need courage. I was reading Philippians 1 earlier this week and verse 20 stood out with me that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death we can sing songs of heaven and encourage our souls but when we're staring down the barrel of death and facing the prospects of telling our loved ones goodbye we know that what we believe is true but there's still a great deal of uncertainty until we open our eyes in death. There are heaping amounts of courage that are needed in that moment. So how do you deal with it? How do you deal if you're in sickness? James says you call the elders. Call the elders. First off, I'd like to point out to you that this is what we believe, possibly the first letter written, right? The earliest letter written. And even at this stage, at this early history in the church, you see a plurality of elders. You see elders in every church. So this isn't some newfangled deal where the young restless and reform came out. Oh, this is the way you're supposed to organize your church. No, this is the way that God prescribed that the church should be organized with the plurality of elders. Why the elders? Why call the elders? And why not just call some brothers and sisters and friends in the church and do that? Well, probably because you're in a church, all of the church, your brothers and sisters, and probably the elders too, know of your situation, at least are aware of it. And so they're already praying for you. So, I mean, that is already being done. They're aware something's going on. But in this instance, things have been heightened you're discouraged and you desperately need help and you're fearful and the elders are called by God to shepherd you we're called to care for you to comfort you to help you think biblically about your concerns and your trials and to intercede on your behalf 
And he prescribes a way for this to happen. In verse 14, the, the elders are to pray over him or her and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. Is there some magic formula to this? Is there some magic to the oil? No. The elders are just praying for, a per, for the person in the way that she may not be able to pray for her, herself. Her spirit may be willing, but her flesh is weak. The oil here is a symbol of grace. It's letting the sick one know that they are being set apart, that they are being consecrated for God's special attention and care. As we sometimes say here in church, we see the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we hear the Bible, and we speak the Bible. And how the Lord's Supper is a picture for us, right? A, a, an acting out of what we believe about the gospel. And so we're acting out a spiritual reality that's a means of grace for our faith. The same with the oil. In time of severe sickness, when the odds are stacked against us so high that we may question whether or not our prayers are effective, this oil is a tangible, is, a, is an aroma, is a, is a, is a physical uh, acknowledgement, a physical testament to you that, that uh, you are being lifted up, you're being sanctified, set apart for the Lord and encouraged. Some of you may be wondering if this is the basis for the uh, Catholic sacrament of last rites. Um, it's not, because last rites is for the person who is dying. It's like the very last thing that happens. Oh, they're dying. You better call the priest and administer last rites. Not, not sure what the purpose is for that, but the purpose here is for living. The purpose is for faith. It's for this life here. Also, the family sometimes, oftentimes, calls the priest and says, would you please come administer last rites here? It's the one who is sick who is asking for it, who needs strengthening in their faith. In verse 15, we see the results of the prayer for the one who is sick. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, those are three pretty big promises right there. Does this mean that everyone the elders pray for is healed? And if they aren't healed, then it wasn't a prayer of faith? I think this is where the boldness of prayer comes in. We absolutely know that God hears our prayers. And we also know that uh, that God has the power to heal. And so we confidently pray to that end. We absolutely pray, Lord, would you please heal this person? Confident in the character of God that he hears and he will answer according to his wisdom. But we also have read the rest of the letter. And we see in verse in uh, 415, instead you ought to say, if the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live. And so it isn't up to us to determine whether someone will live or not. But that doesn't cheapen the promise here. Because as I said, we're not just asking at the beginning, we're not just asking for the trial to go away, but we're asking to be sustained and strengthened um, uh, both in faith and endurance in the trial. For we know that even if we're granted the cup of death to pass from us, 
It will not always be so. It is appointed to men to die. And so even though we may not die this time, our bodies are failing and they're wearing out. And day by day, it's getting, it's getting weaker and weaker, as some of us may be able to attest. And so the way that we're fully and finally healed is when the corruptible inherits the incorruptible. When we die and the power of sin no longer has any bearing on us whatsoever and we're, whatsoever, and we're given new heavenly bodies. And so we pray, acknowledging that that is the ultimate promise for us. But what does the Lord will raise him up mean? It could mean healing. It could mean um, 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 restoring. It could also mean that the Lord sustains her and gives her strength to endure the unthinkable trial that she's under. What about the last one? If he has committed sins, then he will be forgiven. So is James saying that the elders have the power to have the sick person's sins forgiven? I think we see all of this in our New Testament reading in Mark 2, in the story of the healing of the paralytic. This paralytic wasn't blind, deaf, or mute. He wasn't in a coma. He was a paralytic. He couldn't get to Jesus. His circumstances prohibited him from coming to Jesus. He could not do it on his own. Just flat out couldn't. And so even if he exhibited faith, or if he had faith, he couldn't really exhibit faith in that instant. And so he was in a humble spot. He needed help. He can't do anything about that. And so his friends picked him up on the cot and carried him to the Lord. Look at the boldness there. They didn't stop at anything. They, were, they audaciously cut a hole in the roof. And they let their friend down through the roof so that he could be before Jesus. And what happened? Mark 2, 5 says that when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? I think all of them, the paralytic and the people who were lowering him down, the ones brought to him, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes, they thought this was blasphemy. So Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? And so he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And so we see Jesus heal and we see him forgive sin and we see him tell him to rise, to give evidences of healing and by connection, his forgiveness of sin. And so we see all those work together. We see all three present right there. We see healing, we see saving, we see him raising him up and we see forgiveness of sins. And so when the person struggling with illness is discouraged, Certainly sin and doubt can creep in. Maybe in his struggle with sin, he's encouraged because he's hyper aware of his sinfulness and his ability to repent is all bottled up with his ability to exhibit faith. He just can't do it. And so the elders bring the sick person before the Lord and he's encouraged and he's strengthened. Prayer brings about humility. As we see our weakness and our inability to save ourselves, yet that humility leads to boldness, to cry out for help, 
and to lift up our loved ones to the Lord, which brings about restoration and strength for the trials that we face so that Christ will be honored in our bodies, either by life or by death. We can see this connection once again between sin and illness here in verse 16, in the, in the first half of 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sin and healing, sin and illness are right there together again. This requires humility to examine your relationships with other people and see and confess possible sin. Most commentators, they don't see here like having a church service and everybody taking turns stepping up and just confessing their sin, everybody to one another, though that may be the case, but uh, though that may be needed at times, but what they see here is uh, sin between one another. Confess your sin that you confess if you're holding something against someone else and ask for forgiveness. This is why um, uh, the observ- our observ- we say in our observance of the Lord's Supper that um, we, or we encourage you to silently reflect on your relationship with other people and confess that sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28 through 30, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, I mean, there is this judgment of sin that manifests itself in illness. But prayer not only creates humility, but it also creates boldness to speak up with one another and to admit that we have wronged another person. And so we're encouraged to confess and to pray one another so that our own souls and our relationships may be healed. We don't realize what a devastating effect sin has on our mind, on our hearts, on our relationships, on our churches, and on our world. Creation groans because of the effects of sin. So seeking the Lord in prayer and reading God's word are ways that our hardness of heart and the destruction caused by our flippancy with sin can be revealed. But prayer of repentance and renewal and praise and acknowledging God ways, God's ways over our own, praying that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, praying in those ways are the way that God brings about restoration and renewal amongst and in the people of God. But that seems hard to believe. I mean, what can one person's prayers do? I mean, it can't accomplish much. But that's the question that James answers here in the next, uh, next in the last half of verse 16 through 18. We see here that prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. James says the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as my brother Larry in the back with his King James memorization, uh, I'm sure the effectual prayer of a fervent righteous man availeth much, availeth much. Amen. In other words, don't doubt what prayer can do. Take the prophet Elijah, for instance. James says he was a man just like us. He had a nature just like ours. He wasn't superhuman. 
He was a fallen, stubborn person just like me. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed, um, this is vaguely referring to an event in 1 Kings 17, where Elijah says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And this was a judgment against Israel and against their king Ahab, against, against Israel and their king for their sin. Now think about the barrenness and death and, the, and hopelessness of the land if rain doesn't fall for three and a half years. Imagine the discouragement. Imagine the destruction. Imagine the misery of those who had to live through that. This is a picture of the destructive nature of sin and our willingness to live through it. Our willingness to just fight through it and just go, well, this is what I'm called to, so I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to kick against it to carry on like we've got good sense to try to make things work apart from God's judgment. Finally, the Lord tells Elijah to go up on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 and pray. Pray for rain. And so Elijah bowed himself on the earth and put his head between his knees and prayed. And the Lord stopped him and said, Okay, Elijah, go look to the sea. Go look toward the sea. And so Elijah went there and, and uh, the Lord said, What do you see? And Elijah said, I don't see anything. There's nothing there. And he said, Okay, well, go pray. And so he goes back and he prays again. He prays fervently for rain. And the Lord says, okay, Elijah, go look to the sea. What do you see? He says, I don't see anything. And he says, okay, come back and pray. He does that seven times. And on the seventh time, he tells, God tells Elijah, okay, Elijah, look toward the sea. What do you see? And it says, Elijah saw a cloud the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And the Lord told Elijah to tell Ahab to prepare for rain. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. Did Elijah doubt? He did not. Was he double-minded? He was not. Did he see anything that led him to believe that this would come about? Nothing. Whose idea was it to bring rain? wasn't Elijah's. The Lord told him to pray for rain. He told him what he was about to do, and so Elijah prayed. Yet it was the Lord's good pleasure to include Elijah in the plan of renewal and restoration. And how does James describe it there at the end of verse 18? The heavens gave rain and earth bore its fruit. The prayers brought about fruitfulness. The prayers put an end to barrenness. The prayers put an end to death and hopelessness and brought about life and promise. So does this mean if we try hard enough, pray hard enough, have enough faith that we can bring about droughts and floods? If we ask that question, what are we hoping to accomplish? I'm reminded of the request of Simon the Magician in Acts 8. 
when he saw the work of the apostles and he's like, man, I want that. What do I got to do to get that? And it revealed his heart. He just wanted to do tricks. He didn't want faith. James in 4.2 and 4.3 finds fault with us in two ways. He says, one, you have not because you ask not. So we aren't given to prayer. But then he says, you ask not, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So prayer isn't something that we're supposed to do just to go, let's see if we could just do a couple of tricks here. Let's see if we could just bring this about or bring that about. No, it's as we pray for people and as we hear God's word, we pray God's will back to him and we seek, to, we seek his promises to be fulfilled. So in using the story of Elijah, James points out the dramatic to encourage us in praying for the things that are right in front of us. Pray for ailing brothers and sisters that they would be healed and encouraged, that we would be sustained in our suffering, that the Lord would be praised in our prosperity and we would use that prosperity to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Pray that those who have struggled with the deceitfulness of sin may be forgiven and that our relationships and our hearts would be given new life as we turn from our sin and find joy and satisfaction in Christ. Which leads to our last observation on prayer. This goes back to something James mentioned in 2.14 and through 17, you know, that faith without works is dead. Well, here... We see that we can pray for someone poorly clothed, or we can, we, there we see we can pray for someone poorly clothed or lacking in food. But that concern for our brother is never alone. It leads to activity. And so we see in 19 and 20 that prayer is active. Prayer is active. As we have considered examining our relationships with others and considering our offense, there will also be times when we're made aware of of uh, our brothers and sisters sin or they're wandering away from the Lord. People who have professed to be hearers of the word but not doers of the word as James describes in 119 and following. People who have deceived themselves, who have forgotten what they look like, who have been made aware of their sin but don't do anything about it, who just carry on, just continue to live according to the world thinking that they're all good and that there are no consequences of their sin. Yes, pray for those people. Pray for them. Verse 19 and 20, tell us to go after them. Bring them back. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't speak against them to other people, 5-9. Instead, we plead with them. The judges at the door beseech them to, to come back home. Show them the consequence of their sin and beg them to come back home. Implore them to turn and repent and find faith in Christ, find hope in Christ. Surely we speak to the Lord about our brother, but we also speak to our brother about the Lord and his commands and invite him home. Yes, it may be costly to us as it was costly to the prophets to speak the word to them and they were hated for it. But know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering you are saving that person's soul from death and a multitude of sins are covered. Prayer heightens our sensitivity and awareness for those around us. 
but it is also an impetus for us to enter the fray and actively engage them. Prayer leads to action. So that's the book of James. James begins by telling us that we will definitely have trouble in this world, but there are great rewards for the one who endures. God is using the trials of this life to make you perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I want that. It may look like nothing's happening, but be patient. Patient like the farmer who's been here before. He knows the early blessings of the rain and the torrential, seemingly destructive late rains. He understands that both of those have their purpose. And we know that if we remain steadfast, the crown of life awaits those who love him. We can be fooled. We can think we're obeying when we're not. We can be prone to value the things of this world and seek the utmost worth in them. But we also know that we can excuse ourselves of inaction and a faulty speech. But God provides wisdom for us to turn away from those things that leads us to peace. We must be on our guard against worldliness. Our friendship with the world puts us in opposition to the Lord. It can cause us to place our trust in our future, in our skills, in our, per- in our personal wisdom. But James exhorts us to patience and steadfastness. Hold steady. Remain firm. And we don't do that on our own. God has offered us himself and has shown us that he is the one who sustains us in our suffering and who is our great provider. He longs to heal. He loves to forgive and is always inclined toward the one who is humble before him, yet emboldened by those promises of God. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Beloved, what a privilege we have to live this life in confident submission to our creator, sustainer, and savior. Let us joyfully and eagerly with full courage honor Christ with our bodies and our church, no matter what may come. Let's pray. Father, we have been considering this book for the last three months. And I'm fearful that so many of the lessons that we have learned just get filed away and are long forgotten. But Father, we are confident in your word. We thank you that your word never returns void. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be faithful to your promises in us and that you would take this seed that you have planted and that you would build within us 
fashion within us a righteousness of Christ. We pray that you would grant us a humility to see our sin for what it is, to lament the frailty and the brokenness of our relationships with one another. And Lord, we also pray that you would grow within us a boldness, a boldness to trust you at your word, a boldness to live not in fear, but in confidence with full courage so that we may glorify you in our good days and in our bad days. Father, we acknowledge that for every one of us, difficult days are coming. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do the work in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls today to prepare us for that day so that we may glorify you as broken vessels. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.